0: Jason and
1: Yvonne Lee, wife,
0: husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators explorers of identity
1: you're listening to logger lane spirits a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails
0: join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on LagraLaneSpirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Mm -hmm. Camouflage is a game we all like to play, but our secrets are as surely revealed by what we want to seem to be as by what we want to conceal. Russell Lyons, editor and arbiter of taste, Harper's Magazine.
1: Il n'est pas nécessaire d'enterrer la vérité. Il suffit simplement de le retarder jusqu'à personne ne s'en soucie. Napoleon Bonaparte.
0: Say what? Ooh là là. What'd you call me? Why what, what are, are you talking about me? Why are you talking about me? In, in, in France, in French.
1: You mean in What's France?
0: In, in France. In <laughs> France. <laughs> You're speaking French. Why?
1: Because, parce que je, aujourd'hui, we are drinking the French 75 cocktail. N'est pas? da? <laughs> and I have been watching Inventing Anna on Netflix, and I'm mesmerized by accents and becoming something I am
0: not. <laughs> you are mesmerized by passing. Uh, Mais we? Mm, mm. While I shake up this cocktail... Why don't you translate what Napoleon said?
1: Yes, of course. He said, it is not necessary to bury the truth. It is sufficient merely to delay it until nobody cares. Oh, my God. This one hit me hard, especially when I thought about it in the context of passing. Uh, which we talked about in episode one and define as when a racially ambiguous ambiguous person of color,
0: usually for reasons of social mo- mobility or uh, to like, um, you know, avoid death.
1: Yeah, yeah, that. Uh, when they will pass themselves off as white, that is passing from, uh, you know, an a historical perspective. And when I think about the truth, you know, delaying the truth until nobody cares. All I can think about is all of those white folks out there who are actually black and will never know. Dig. And how this child, Anna, in this Netflix show, Inventing Anna, is passing for a German heiress, an ain't full German nor an heiress, but she passed as one and quite <laughs> well. Excuse me. Ah. That right here is tasty.
0: I present to you the French 75. Do you taste anything different?
1: Um, yummy
0: goodness. No, this drink is passing for one with alcohol. It's a mocktail. I substituted out the gin and the champagne. And so it's lemon juice, simple syrup, and San Pellegrino sparkling water. And you, my love, have the very first Lagrelane Spirits Mocktail. What do you think about
1: it? This is lovely. It's refreshing. It's light. I love the color. A little fresh lemon always has such a beautiful pale yellow to it. And this is something I could drink all day. I love it. What's, what's in this? Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. As an aside, I love that more restaurants and bars are expanding their mocktail offerings. Yeah. And... Uh, you know creating really well-balanced drinks with exciting and interesting flavor combinations that don't have alcohol. Yeah. It's like it's creating access for non-drinking folks to have uh, better experiences at social gatherings with folks who do partake.
0: Da, yes, yes. And what I love about it is with regards to our exploration on Laggerline spirits is you know it's about the story, right? It's always about the story, whether it's the story of the cocktail, the mocktail, the historical construct of passing, whatever identity themes we're exploring. It's, we definitely don't want to push away our non-drinking friends. So mm-hmm. I, too, love that bars are, are opening up to, uh, to mocktails. But so the French 75 cocktail, just to give you the recipe for that, and then I'll give you the recipe for this mocktail version. The cocktail of the French 75, is one of my favorite cocktails. It's a lovely, lovely drink. It's uh, two ounces of gin, three-quarters ounce lemon juice, half ounce of simple syrup. You shake all of those ingredients and strain them into a champagne flute, and then you float champagne on top. If you like a garnish, a lemon slice garnish would suffice. It's really a fantastic, fantastic beverage. The mocktail version, or some people would call it the virgin version. Basically swaps out completely any alcohol, so you would have the three quarters ounce lemon juice, a half ounce of simple syrup, and uh, you could float a San Pellegrino sparkling water of your choice, and enjoy a non-alcoholic version of the French 75.
1: Oh, either way, it sounds very elegant. Like the vessel that you put the drink in, whether it's the cocktail or the mocktail, Mm -hmm. it's still going to give you a sense of like, oh, this is nice. You know, like when you put your food on a particular platter, it matters what what you put your food on and how you experience it, how you plate it. Glass it, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, today in season two, episode two, we are talking about modern day passing and the roles we play to gain access to equity.
0: It's funny. As actors, we have roles to play. We have situations to become. So we have mm-hmm. stories to tell so that. We may exist in character on stage. So it's it's interesting to explore how, when, and why we become something else and for what reason.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and we have to ask ourselves, is there a point where that is taken too far? You, these roles to play uh, when Hollywood becomes a stage, life becomes the stage. In the film Passing, which we'll, you know, we'll talk to two of my fellow executive producers later in the episode, there is a quote. We all pass at something. So <laughs> what's your thing, Mr. Lee?
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you Mr. Lee is one role I do not play. Well, I play it with my kids, but I identify as Mr. Lee. But Mr. Lee was my dad and, and my grandfather, my adopted father's father. Simon Lee, I will always remember my my memory of Simon, of Grandpa was um, we'd go visit Albert Lee, Minnesota. He would be in the basement chewing his tobacco, and uh, then my brother and I would sit and stare down and watch him down in the basement. And then we'd go play pickup sticks. You know, now our kids are all about the their devices, but that's how we, we mm-hmm. that's how we entertained ourselves. Yeah, good memories. But I should be asking you that. Since one main reason why we're doing a season two is because in season one, I did an Ancestry.com DNA test and learned about my identity and some other crazy things. And we said season two was going to be your turn. So Mm -hmm. where are we at? Did you do it? Did you take the test? Shall we see (laughs) what you've been, uh, shall we say, passing as? Yeah. No. No. Well, I bought two, I bought you two two kits before Christmas.
1: Yeah, well, they dried out, and I, <laughs> you know, I just couldn't. I don't know why I would just see that thing, and another thought would come in my head, and I'd be washing <laughs> kids' hair or have to make dinner, or you know, I, I'm not sure what it was that I didn't want to face. Although it sometimes excited me, and sometimes it made me,
0: you know, scared. Well, what made you scared about it? Honestly, what made you scared? Did you have uh, apprehension? Did you have fear?
1: Well, I guess, you know, I, I don't know why, but I have like, is someone g- going to connect me to somebody who committed some kind of crime like years and <laughs> years ago and finally they, I was the connector to what it was. They were all that CSI
0: stuff that you love to watch. She, I know yeah. it's probably
1: not like real, like nobody's going to come knocking on the door and said, we no, finally that's real. got you. They,
0: they actually, it's real. They <laughs> do. They're, they're, they're actually doing that.
1: So
2: Jason, <laughs> see, I mean...
1: but anyway i knew we were doing this thing and somehow i said it and so i finally spit into that little tube it took me i had to figure out i was like how does a person spit i was drawing it out i would try to get my tongue in the right place make the spit come out from underneath the (laughs) glands did all that stuff (laughs) and
0: And i dropped that
1: sucker in the mail this week and now i'm beginning the text messages that you know it's coming yes
0: well since we have to wait that's how they get you Mm-hmm. Since we have to wait for uh, your results to come back in and and, and all, jo- all jokes and all kidding aside, you know, there's privacy concerns and there's all sorts of valid concerns that people have about spitting in a vial and sending it off to a website to to add your DNA to the, the, some, some master plan. But for me, my exploration of it all has always been from the story perspective. It's a little bit different. Than you, my love, because I didn't know my biological parents until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. So I went searching for that story with the love of my adopted family behind me. But I went searching for the unknown. Uh, you can go to your mom, right, and 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 ask her some questions. But I still feel it's it's everyone's. I'll go so far to say birthright to know f- from wh- wh- who we come from. So I'm I'm proud of you for doing that and w- waylaying any fears that you might've had and, and, and doing it. Cause we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. So I just wanted <laughs> to say done. good stuff. We did I'm, I'm it glad, and it's going to
1: be revealed with everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So I promised I shipped it out.
0: You promise you did send it up.
1: Yes. I promise. Cross my heart. And I hope to be a Filipino and black
0: baby. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause <laughs> you know, I, I could help you out there. You know, there are, there are 37 different ways to spit in a vial. It's an art. Mm -hmm. It is an art. Yes. But okay, since we can't do your big reveal just yet, I have a story that's relevant to this conversation of modern passing and is directly tied to my own crazy DNA trail. please. Well, so so our, our listeners from season one will recall my adoption story and my meeting of my birth parents. Well, between season one and season two, earlier this year, 2022, My biological mother and my biological half sister both passed away from COVID complications. This was in January. My birth mom passed away in November, but my half sister was intubated and hospitalized for upwards of six weeks. Um, Yeah, I mean, just COVID, crazy. The only two people I know personally who have passed away from COVID, it's just pretty, pretty strange. I shared this story respectfully because they have recently passed away, but it fits this conversation. And as I always say, I'm all about the story. I'm fearless in exploration of the story. I saw a photo of my half sister. Her father was also an African-American man, different dads, same mom. Much more light-skinned than I, and I'm pretty light-skinned, but she was much more light-skinned than I, and uh, lived with her mom, her, her our German descended mother. Well, she was blonde she was light-skinned living in, in in outside of kansas city kansas or kansas city missouri whichever one it was i think it was the missouri side she had dyed her hair uh it looked as if she was passing and i was talking to some uh family members who knew her far better than i did i met her when at our wedding yvonne in 2006 but some family members would would talk about her father when they would come visit, either Nebraska or Iowa, and her father in the '70s and, and '80s wouldn't take her outside. She w- wouldn't let her go play outside because he was concerned for all of the various racial reasons. So I can understand
1: because because he and didn't empathize. want her skin to get darker.
0: Didn't want her skin to get darker. Didn't want her to to play with some boys or girls who would uh, know that she is half black and make that an issue. Any reasons why he made that choice for her, you know, are, are their reasons. So she chose, and this is now, sadly, I, w- I will never be able to ask this question, but it seems to me that she chose to identify more so with her German heritage than with her African heritage. And she was light enough for that to occur. Now, I wonder, Yvonne, your thoughts on that. Does that mean she's passing? I mean, her mother is German. She white. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the group of people who are around you. And in this moment, I'm trying to, um, exercise empathy with your past sister who's passed in a sense that like, if I'm in a room of white people all the time, if I want to be accepted in that space, and you know she did grow up with her white mother so she's going to identify with that side to where it makes her feel most comfortable and accepted and valued
0: well, remember our, in episode one, Yvonne, uh, of this season, you know, Monique was talking about that. Monique Marshall and, and, and her husband, DeMille were, were both sharing to us their stories of identity and, and when the community came around them. And a lot of those moments for us all happen in college, right? When we first get out of the house. But yeah, like Monique said, she, her, her mother's German, you know, so was mine. Our fathers are of African descent. So there's that duality. And that's why historically speaking, I, I would love to put myself back in time and try to say, yo, that's not thats not something I would ever do. I would never pass. But I can understand why people would make those choices. I mean, it was literally life or death in a lot of situations. And it still is in certain places.
1: I was just thinking of another moment, if I was going to say, not passing in the historical sense, but um, trying to figure out where I belonged, more like that. So it wasn't it like this kind of Upward mobility that I was trying to have in using passing, but I do remember um, going to Macon, Georgia, for the first time. You know, from Arizona to Macon, Georgia, to to visit my dad's side of the family, and I had never seen so many black people in one place ever, and I felt like so. Well, first of all, it's from being from Arizona, I suppose. But at that time, I, all I could think was, am I black enough right now? <laughs> people, I could see people looking at me and seeing that I looked different, right? Because everybody really in that space had really, really dark skin. And I didn't. And, you know, and I think at that time I was probably wearing my hair straight. So a lot of my, my Filipino features were coming out. And so I was trying to figure out how do I blend into some place where I clearly... Stand out like a sore thumb, so that everybody else will go, oh yeah, she black. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if there was some kind of survival, it was to not be pointed out as so different from from them.
0: Yeah, that's, it's interesting because I'm remembering growing up in in Galesburg. We moved around a lot when I was a kid, but when I, we lived in Galesburg, Illinois, early '80s, so I'm like you know 10 to 13, and my brother, my older brother, was uh, was a really good athlete and played basketball. And, uh, and football too, but he played a lot of basketball. A lot of his buddies on his team would come over, we'd play in the driveway, and of course I'd get my shot rejected left and right, trying to throw something up and they're just you know knocking it away. This is before we got to Chicago, the sub- suburbs of Chicago, which was a much more predominantly white environment. But, I mean, to, to use the various racial tropes of the time I mean, we were breaking out the cardboard uh with the jam box the beat box we mm-hmm. were breakdancing i remember we were, that we we're doing we we're doing all of that back in Galesburg in the early 80s and that was my kind of first time understanding uh looking outside of my family my immediate family that was raising me and seeing the community this is after my mom in the late 70s was giving me ebony magazines to and jet magazines for me to identify to, to attach me to the culture but then I started making friends I started seeing people right and so yeah that shapes you
1: yeah it does yeah it makes me think of like when it when it comes to like your passing right so what does passing gain us today like what kind of access does it open up what kind of sacrifices have to be made in the process you know and what you're saying Jason what you gain by not having to pass is your whole self, right? Yeah. You get to bring in that other part of you that you didn't have before, you know? And if I, what cost me in that moment in making was was that I, I didn't let other people know that I was Filipino, right? Like I'm just black, I'm not Filipino. So I give up that part of my identity in order to survive in that situation.
0: I think that access is important, right? But at what cost? Like if your parents named you Shanika or Hennessy, and then you try to go on a job, I mean, there's data out there that says if you have these certain names, you're going to get mm-hmm. passed over for Jane mm-hmm. or Mary. Why can't yeah. Shanika, who's got a 4.0 GPA from so and so, get get the job? Why can't she just be herself?
1: Yeah. So this like modern form of passing means that we're we're all trying to attain this. What did you? I think you might have said something in another conversation white male and yale
0: pale male and yale
1: oh pale male and the yale the american
0: diplomats for the longest right? time right
1: and yeah. then you yeah. might add like straight in there you know we're all whatever sure. we can pass off as so that we can attain what we envision the person who has the most power we're going to do that so that we can have access to what we believe
0: let's be real it's it's not just a, a, obtaining right? It's surviving. In order to survive, in, in in many cases, you you have to contort yourself to fit in a certain narrative.
1: Do you think that your half-sister was trying to survive?
0: Uh, no, uh, this is an assumption. I'll answer with empathy and compassion in my heart. I have no ill will towards them. I, it, I honestly think she was more connecting with her mother than trying to survive, right? Like I mean, she was... She mm-hmm. was working in the tech space. I mean, she had a she had a great job. She, you know, it's historically, are we all trying to survive? Yeah. I mean, you know, anytime you go on outside, mm-hmm. you know, as I'll say this as a black man, anytime I go outside, I'm I'm mindful of where I am all the time. There's always an mm-hmm. act of survival for us all in <laughs> in this landscape. But there's also an identity. Uh, existential survival. I think that's, that's more in play than an actual physical survival, right. To yeah. be herself. But if yeah. you identify, and this is again, what we talked about in episode one, right? Like if her mom is German, that's how you identify, then so be it. Okay. That's okay. Right. I'm a historian. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't want to kind of think, fake think like I have mm-hmm. uh, some answers here, yeah. but, um, yeah. Yes, I will say that she was trying to survive, but I don't think she was trying to su- survive physically. I think she was mentally trying to stay connected in survival to her mother who she was living with. I mean, that's the, 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 the historicism about passing and all of the various elements s- sexually, Im- immigration, name wise, gender, name-wise, gender uh, you name society, it. Race, role, societal yeah, roles, societal roles. Fitting into the yeah. dominant culture. How do you fit into the dominant culture? And how long do you play the game in order to try to fit into that dominant culture?
1: Right, before
0: it just tears at your soul. Before it tears you apart.
1: And that is a segue into bringing in our guests, Chaz Ebert and Brenda Robinson, executive producers of Passing. I'm really excited to talk to these two women who have definitely dealt with this question of who do we have to be in these spaces that aren't traditionally made for us?
0: Folks, what Yvonne did did not mention just now is that she is also an executive producer of Passing alongside these two incredible women. And I I, uh, got a special thanks, which I'm very proud of.
1: We had fun on this one. It was awesome.
0: Brenda Robinson is producer and philanthropist. She is the current board chair of Film Independent and a partner at Game Changer Films. Robinson, also a member of Film Financing Collective Impact Partners, was a financier on the Oscar-winning documentary Icarus, alongside us, among other projects. Her executive producer credits include Rebecca Hall's Passing, United Skates, and the upcoming Empire of Ebony documentary directed by Lisa Cortez. She previously was Film Independence Vice Chair and also has roles including serving on the board of the Representation Project, founded by Jennifer Siebel Newsom an advisor to the Redford Center, and is board chair of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. She is also a member of the Recording Academy and the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences.
1: Jason and I have been friends with Brenda for many, many years now, both on and off the court, and she is truly one of the most compassionate, elegant, Art loving, loving a day at Disneyland women. I know. <laughs> this podcast is really just my excuse to get Brenda on the phone for an hour. Huh. And joining Brenda is our friend Chaz Ebert, who is a 3P triple threat <laughs> publisher, producer, and p- philanthropist.
0: Uh, uh, I like this joke. You sound like my joke? That. I do.
1: <laughs> well, babe, you you are well on your way to joining the PPP club. Maybe that's why you two get along so well. <laughs> Jazz is the CEO of Ebert Companies, which publish movie reviews at RogerEbert.com and produce shows and movies uh, at Ebert Productions and Black Leopard Productions. She is a co founder and producer of the Roger Ebert Film Festival, Ebert Fest, entering its 22nd year at the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. The Ebert Film Festival resumed at the Virginia Theatre April 20th to the 23rd in connection with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For over 30 years, she has participated in film festivals all over the world, but what she most values is her establishment of outlets at the festivals, where she encourages and supports emerging writers, filmmakers, and technologists with her endowment of scholarships, internships, or awards. Along with her late husband, Roger, she is the subject of the award-winning documentary, Life Itself, directed by Steve James and based on the New York Times best-selling memoir of Roger Ebert. Previously, as a civil rights attorney, Chaz was named Lawyer of the Year by the Constitutional Rights Foundation. Okay, well, there is so much more I could say about these incredible women, but I can't wait any longer to bring them on. So I encourage you to read their full bios on our show notes. Hello, my
2: friends. Hello.
0: Hello, hello. Hello.
2: Hi, Brenda.
1: Brenda
0: and Chaz, (laughs) thanks so much for being here with us.
2: Thank you for inviting us.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We're thrilled and we're looking forward to just wrapping up. You guys were three co-executive producers of the wonderful movie, Passing, Rebecca Hall's Passing. Let's just, let's dive right in there. And whoever wants to grab this first, either you, Chaz, or Brenda, how did you get involved with Passing? How did that come across your desk?
3: Well, I have to say, first of all, how thrilled I am to be in this space. And I'm so happy that passing could be yet another opportunity for us to be brought together. And to say that it was an honor to be a part of passing really was an understatement. For me personally, this was truly a full circle moment. But I first read the book Passing by Nella Larson as a college freshman, in African American Studies 101. And in that course just learned so much about my history that I hadn't been exposed to in, uh, in high school mm-hmm. and, and beyond. And I w- remember being fascinated at the idea that this phenomenon actually existed, that people actually engaged in this form of identity and, and uh, uh, just creating a way of existing that allowed them to infiltrate spaces and go undetected. And so I remember going home and speaking with my mother about it and just sharing with her how impacted I was by the story. And then that's when she told me about our own family's history and experience with passing. And it relates to identity. It relates Mm. to colorism. And she then proceeded to tell me all the relatives um, who I'd never met, grandparents who, who lived as white and the relatives we have now, um, who pass, mm, yeah. um, deliberately, uh, to the point of changing names and, uh, changing circles. And wow. so to learn in that moment, just how much this still persists and to think about why people make those choices was incredible to me. So this project then, you know, 20 plus years later came across my desk through my, uh, partnership in Game Changer Films. And I remember Geraldine Dreyfus, my business partner, bringing this to us. And I remember the reaction that I had. It was just an immediate, even before I read the script or saw anything, I just thought, this is so important. I have to be a part of this somehow. It has so much personal meaning for me to tell this story. And of course, to be able to come to all of you, to Chaz Ebert, who has always been an extraordinary support to me and mentor and friend in this industry and in life. And you, Jason, and Yvonne, us just ascending together in this industry, finding things of importance that we could collaborate on. It was yeah. really an honor for me to be able to bring this to all of you, and for us to come together and decide that we would cast that vote of confidence in this story, in this director, and in these voices. And this has been mm-hmm. a, a life-changing experience for me because it really showed me what storytelling is supposed to feel like and what our roles can be in terms of just having impact and be able to help filmmakers be heard and to actually have their voices pushing forth issues that are so critical. It's really incredible experience.
0: Thank you for that context. I was an African american history major and uh one of my courses was literature and i too read it and it was it was an introduction to me on the the history behind the the concept of passing so as soon as you brought it to us it was a it was a no-brainer for us to get involved but yvonne please grab the mic
1: yeah uh Chaz, would you want to tell us you know, we've told a little bit in previous episodes about what passing is do you want to give us a little bit about what the film is and maybe what has been one of the the, the more unique experiences for you as we've we've gone along
2: Well, when I was, I lived on the west side of Chicago, and Mm -hmm. when I was growing up, it was very common to hear people talk about this phenomenon of passing. Someone who was born black, uh, African American, and who lived secretly as white or sometimes South American Mm -hmm. or Italian Um Because it was easier for them to get jobs, maybe to marry someone in a higher income bracket. Uh, In the old days, and I'm talking old days before voting was a right that we all had, someone who wanted to vote maybe Mm -hmm. had to be white, someone Mm -hmm. who wanted to own property, someone who wanted to... Be admitted to institutions of higher education. There were very, very many reasons that people wanted to would, would would choose to pass as a different race and show up as a you know change their identity in order to be be part of society. And so we would hear many stories. And I knew I had cousins who lived in Detroit. Who when we when they visited us, we were, you know, confused. Like, why, why were our cousins white and we were black? Mm-hmm. Well, they were black, but some of them chose to live as white, some chose to live as black, but we loved, they we all loved each other mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. family. And uh, you know, I I wrote up an essay for the film called The Freedom to Pass. Mm-hmm. And I talked about these. When I was in my neighborhood, there were two ladies. I lived in a black neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. And there were two ladies that we called them the two white ladies who lived down the block. But we didn't understand why they were living there. They lived very happily, you know, with all the neighbors, with everyone. Everyone got along. But every now and then, this limousine would pull up and one of the, na- and, and the ladies, the, their names were significant. The, the mother's name was Adele. She was, I thought she was about maybe perhaps 90-ish or so, and her daughter was named Miss Roebuck, like Sears Roebuck Mm. and Company. Mm. And so we didn't understand the connection. Was Roebuck a descendant of the Roebuck who founded Sears Roebuck? And if so, why didn't we know he was black or why didn't we know... If he was black, or it, it was just very confusing to us. So, wow. When Brenda gave us an opportunity to become involved in this project, it was something that, of course, we were interested in. And my only question is, why was Rebecca Hall, who I knew from Vicky, Christina, Barcelona, mm-hmm. and a lot of other, why was this white English actress mm-hmm. going to direct a movie about passing? What did she know about it? So, one of the things I wanted to do first was investigate why she wanted to do it and how she was going to approach it because I, I didn't want it to be, you know, maybe, remember the movies when we were growing up like Pinky and Imitation of Life uh-huh. mm-hmm. and sometimes they would have someone white who was portraying a black actress. I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to, to be more authentic. And in yeah. talking to Rebecca and finding out her that her mother was the acclaimed opera singer Maria Ewing, and Maria Ewing's father had or father, grandfather, father, I guess, mm-hmm. had passed as white. I, I I I understood her interest in the story, and I knew that she was very serious about telling it in a very authentic way, and yeah. I always trust Brenda when she brings me a project too. And um, (laughs) I heard that you two were involved and I love working with you guys as a team. So that also, that part of it was a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. I I will say like how
1: I I was, I I think that part of the story that you just talked about, you know, why would she be the person um, to tell this story? And then I remember thinking when I saw Vicky Cristina Barcelona, I was looking at her like, Hmm. There's something, there's something I recognize, but I did not, you, you, I, I couldn't put a finger on it. So when I heard the story, it actually made complete sense to me because I got that feeling. Mm-hmm. So, but I love like the intermingling of how we see our histories and cultures um, meld together. So yes. to have someone that maybe uh, outwardly appears white to be able to show how all of our histories come together from a very personal point of view, I think it just gives us. It gives us a reason to come together instead of being apart, you know.
0: I too share the thought. Uh, whatever Brenda says goes. We love partnering with you, Chaz. We love partnering <laughs> with you, Brenda. I love. I'm just going to say this here on the podcast. I loved Lagerlain's presence as executive producers with you two, and I got out of the way because I loved the idea of presenting black female faces in the seat that can help make movies get made too. So tip Mm -hmm. cap to you three Mm. for producing, executive producing, helping Nina and and Rebecca shepherd it along from that lens. It's important.
3: I just have to say how grateful I am that I have the three of you to navigate this industry with. And I think about finding good partners to help push things forward that are important to me and mm-hmm. that vote of confidence is something that really continues to drive me forward in wanting to help other people. It's nice to have that level of support. is very meaningful for me, and you all always take the time to express that mm-hmm. at every turn, and mm. you may not always realize how much you're lifting me up mm. by standing behind me, and I find something important, and I want the same from the three of you, and this is why we're able to be in community with one another. And um, I
0: hope Mm -hmm. that
3: that sends a message to the industry that partnership, that collaboration, that spirit that we have is the best way to succeed.
2: You know, one of the things that I wanted to say about being in partnership is I I have to address this because I'm also a publisher of movie reviews and, Mm -hmm. My late husband, Roger, was a film critic, and so most times we did not get involved in production of movies. Mm. He's done it before. In fact, he wrote a movie, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and uh, which became a cult classic mm-hmm. in the 70s. But I, as... Um, I'm just a producer in my soul, not just producers of television or or movies. I've always been the one in the family or in my school or in an organization who pull things together. And so that's just and I'm a storyteller and mm-hmm. I like to tell stories, you know what what we call the for- forgotten people, the forgotten heroes or forgotten stories that, history hasn't told. And I feel that that's part of my mission because mm. I want to do things that encourage empathy in others and encourage, you know, kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And to me, movies are a way, one of the ways to do that. And so I, I, I do separate out my publishing from my, there's a way that we do it. We put a firewall between my publishing and my producing. But um, I just had to to mention that because you are going to see me producing a lot more movies. So. Yes, oh,
0: I mean, okay. we can't we can't wait. But yay. and and that's a, that's an interesting. What could be a conflict of interest? You, I, I respect what you're saying, Chaz, about setting that firewall in between.
3: The industry's all the better for that. I think one of the reasons
1: I was so excited you guys to have you guys on this is for, because you're able to share this kind of personal history with passing and share that in connection to you know why that story is important and why we want to produce more and why we need to be in charge of the stories that we're telling you know from
2: to be crass from the ruta to the Tuta. <laughs> that's what we need to do <laughs> may I, I have to say one thing before we yes yes move away from that mm-hmm. I just have to. Mention the uh, amazing acting jobs that uh, Ruth Nega and oh, Tessa Thompson truly, truly. And, divine. and the amazing directing that Rebecca Hall mm-hmm. did in her directorial debut for that film. and and actually, Andre Holland,
0: the entire cast so
2: good. the entire cast. they don't get they don't get mentioned enough, so I just have to mention them and give them their props
0: absolutely i'm tipping cap to editors i'm tipping cap to that entire movie that the whole process mm-hmm. of the creation of that film the performances the editing everything was just spot on
2: edward growl uh, the cinematographer uh, yeah, was gonna who say, just was a absolutely.
1: Spirit Award. everyone yes. who said why are you filming it in black and white and trying to tell we're about yes. to do it a different way and then mm-hmm. and this ends up happening you know uh, being uh, acknowledged for it yeah absolutely absolutely there was a lot of love on the set i remember a lot of love on the <laughs> set
0: yeah yeah This is going to get us to our confessional. And and I believe uh, Yvonne's going to ask the question. Okay. uh, Our big question. Are you (laughs) ready for your confessional?
1: Our big question surrounds the theme of passing, as we've been speaking about. And your question is, what more needs to be done so that people of color can show up authentically and not have to pass for anything.
3: I think it starts with a greater acceptance of our stories and, and normalizing that. Now we, as, as people of color, are often finding ourselves having to adjust to a setting or a circumstance or an environment. And, and I've always wondered, where does that come from? Why, Why is that something that has become normalized and so we tell stories to humanize and it is a way to allow other cultures to access each other to the extent we can continue elevating these voices and the artistic choices that they're making, this is where those doors will be kicked open and that's what we're trying to do with our work in this space is making sure that um, there are obviously more seats, but that we began to accept these things as a given. That no one feels they have to wear these masks. We don't have to hide or adjust our own identities. That are all accepted as um, as something that is a normal part of just the, the, the human fabric.
2: So I, back in the 1970s, I think, I was... Uh, An attorney, I was a litigator, and I worked for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission doing employment discrimination litigation, representing people who were discriminated against because of their race or their age or their uh, even back then gender or religion. And one of the things that someone told me when I when they knew that I was being involved, uh, getting involved with the movie Passing, and they knew my background, they said, isn't it wonderful that people don't have to worry about anything like that today? Nella Larson's novel was in 1929, Mm -hmm. and I said, you'd be surprised even how much of today things have improved, no doubt about it. I'm the, the first one to say that things have improved, but well, do you believe that within the last two to five years online, they did a test where they would send resumes and the people had the very same exact qualifications, but they changed the names like Shaniqua Jones and her resume would get passed over, whereas Sally Jones, they would look at her. So. A lot of discrimination is insidious. It's something that's insinuated so firmly into the fabric of society, and we are trying to overcome it and confront it and name it and weed it out, but sometimes there can be an unconscious bias that people don't even know they're carrying out. What do we do? We must just keep showing up as our authentic selves. Mm-hmm. We can't, we shouldn't hide who we are, what we like, what we believe in, who we stand up for, what mm-hmm. we won't take. We we just have to keep showing up as ourselves. And we have to get, as I think it was Stacy Smith said, we have to get the keys to the kingdom so yes. that women if they are in the, you know, C-suites, they're going to hire more women. I mean, we have to make the decision-making positions mirror society.
0: It's happening in football, right? There's the yeah. Rooney Rule in, prof- in professional football. There's a oh, head coach yes. down in Miami right now who is mixed race like myself, black and white. And and, he, mm-hmm. and Brian Flores, the previous coach of of the Miami Dolphins. There's a whole thing going on in football right now, too. So, this reckoning continues. And I love, Chaz, what you said about um, showing up, about continuing to show up as ourselves. Yes. And, and Brenda, what you're talking about is partnering with like minded individuals who can help to move needles to show up and advance narratives that show us in, in our whole uh, totality. It's, I'm moved. I'm, I'm I, I love, I love it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, me too. I, when I think about too, when we accept that we've grown up in a racist, when everybody accepts that we've grown up in a racist community, for me also being able to understand like, what have I internalized growing up in this racist community with these racist ideals that I don't even know that I've taken on, you know? Like sometimes when I do walk into a room with powerful people or all white people there is that moment where i have to go it's okay and i never knew where that came from until i you know just started kind of really understanding like when i had to teach myself more about racism and where it came from and this is this is something i had to do when i was out of high school into college like that's how long it took because it wasn't in my learning early on right it's something i had to seek out and still have moments of have to make sure that I am not taking actions where I've internalized the way that racism can make me feel powerless.
2: You know, one of the other things, and this may sound like pie in the sky, but I'm a firm believer that the other thing that's going to change hearts and minds is, um, I, I hate to even say it, but love We really do have to love and respect ourselves Mm -hmm. first, our families, our communities, each other. And I think that sometimes something happens and a whole wave of whether it's called respect or compassion or empathy, but something happens. And I think that we're at one of those moments in history where we're going to start seeing more of it. Because we're going to be confronted with so many things, you know, there was George Floyd, here's Ukraine, you know, Breonna Taylor, there are so many things happening, that we are, our eyes are opening, we're awakening, and our mm-hmm. hearts are opening too. Mm.
0: Yes, the, the 2020s have been one thing after the other, right, these past two years, there's been a lot going on, and... The reckonings continue, and it is compassion, it is empathy that moves us forward. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we devolve mm-hmm. into the characterization of hate, and and that's not a place that I want to live in.
1: All right? Yeah. Well, I know. I see one thing that you know that you guys have been doing. You know, Brenda uh, with the Annenberg Initiative, you're the chair of that, and you're in the board of Film Independent, but also Film Independent launched the fellowship partnership with Netflix, um, Chaz, you have all of these scholarships and endowments that you've been giving to storytellers.
2: Those are like incredible. What do you feel? What do you feel about the impact? One of the films that I was an executive producer on is called A Most Beautiful Thing. And it's about the first African-American rowing team in the United States, uh, and they they were pursuing going to the olympics and I, I don't want to tell too much in case someone watches yeah. it they were it was a, a team from a, a school on the west side of chicago and the thing about the film is not whether they made it to the olympics or not but what happened to those young men who when they when they started doing teamwork, not one of them. I mean, they ended up opening their own businesses. They ended up reaching back and bringing along some, and and these were former gang members. I have to mention that. Mm -hmm. They ended up bringing along other young people in their neighborhood who wanted to do good. They were determined to interrupt the cycle of generational trauma. Mm. And that's something that I just think is really important. And so I try to support films that have some sort of redeeming social value. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm also one day going to, you know, probably support a film that will make some money. But (laughs) right now,
0: (laughs) right now, this
1: is
2: what I like doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I love that because the impact of that film, when we talk about what can be done so that people of color can show up authentically, I mean, it feels so simplistic to say that, but that's like the, the core truth. That's one of the things that we do is we show young people what they are capable of instead of saying, this is the only thing you can be. You know, so I cannot wait to see that movie.
2: And you know, another thing about that film that was so important, uh, Mary Mazio was the was the director but she went to Congress and testified about. Oh, she got Congressman Danny Davis from, I think he was from the Seventh District in in um, in in uh, Chicago. Uh, she got him to ha- hold hearings on whether violence is a disease, and to and and um, I know there's a. a a woman in, in New York named Erica Ford. She's the head of something called Life Camp. And she, their motto is peace is a lifestyle. And so she she's a violence interrupter. And I just admire the people who go out and put themselves on the front line yes. day after day to try to make things better.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brenda, what
2: Brenda probably has a million things coming up. <laughs>
3: I wanted to close with us just talking about something that all of us are thinking about in this moment. And it really relates to just presenting another example of how you can have impact by presenting a narrative about a community. And that project is the empire of Ebony. Mm. Ah, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. All four of us are executive yes. producers. And oh, what I love about again? that I project. Love it. Yes. <laughs> the four of us. And, and there's real, there's real representation. on this project and there's representation at the directing level at the producing level and at the investment level yeah and that's what you want that that is authenticity on a story and so we're so proud to once again be supporters of a project that helps create an opportunity to present a a celebratory narrative of the black community there are many different aspects to being black yes we see in our discussions about identity And all of these stories deserve their time. So this is, once again, a story, ironically, we all have a strong connection to Chicago in some way or another. We've all spent time there and and sort of discovered our passion for the arts there. Chaz and I, through film, and and Jason and Yvonne, through theater, Mm-hmm. And Brenda, we both are on the board of the Lyric Opera. Yes, that's oh, right. Another yay. thing we have in common. <laughs> and so we we believe in supporting um, strong Chicago institutions, which um, yeah. has been a longtime supporter of places like the, the Steppenwolf Theater and, and um, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Art Institute. I'm on the board of Steppenwolf. Jason and Yvonne have acted with ensemble members from Steppenwolf. So we have so many through lines um, and things in common, and what i love about this story is that it it really reflects 70 plus years of african american history and culture and chicago very much is a character in this story but all of us are characters as well and so we're we're so thrilled that we have the privilege of working very closely with linda johnson rice yeah. um, mm-hmm. of the johnson publishing company family that she had confidence in this film team to bring this history to life was something that uh, we certainly don't take for granted but for us to then have the privilege of having uh the dynamic duo of uh, Lisa cortez as our director roger ross williams is our lead producer and for them to treat this as responsibly as they did on uh, the Apollo, their other incredible work uh, together. We are, we are just grateful that we have this opportunity to showcase not only what was happening in black culture, but what was happening in America at the time. So the film provides so much context and you see how one seminal event can lead to the next and so forth. So it's the story of of just entrepreneurship and resilience that John H. Johnson, a black man, could start a company with $500 loan from his mother against her furniture and turn it into a $200 million plus empire. That was no easy feat. That was a big deal for that time and it's
2: now. It's a big deal for any time. <laughs>
0: Anytime yes. it's right. and so for, yes.
3: for right. us to see ourselves in, in those pages and, and Jason Yvonne, I know you have a very close connection to that. Uh, for Chaz Eber to be featured in those pages, I we was. are on this was, podcast yes. with <laughs> living history right here. <laughs> and that's so a cool a big deal.
2: I was the first African-American enforcement attorney in Region 5 at the Environmental Protection Agency. And so Ebony did a story on me. And I remember the head of the department was so proud that he took the... Ebony issue and he paraded it all through the office so everybody could see. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. That my, that my story, incredible. my story, isn't as impressive. I, I, I remember to this day my white mama handed me an, a copy of Ebony, and <laughs> that was her her way and her attempt to connect with me and to connect me to my heritage. Mm-hmm. And I will, I we lost her in O2 but I will always love and thank her for. That attempt. Now that attempt led me to uh, read a lot of ads advertising grill Cream. So that was how I, would, I was able to figure out my my afro back in back in the day. But I, I meaningfully, jokes aside, connected deeply with my mom through, literally, through Ebony magazine. Yeah,
1: I, I think that that was where I saw like my first connection of black beauty. You know, I lived in Arizona, so it was you know it was me. And my black father, my Filipino mama, a couple of black families on d- down the street there wasn't enough for me to consume on television or in other ways and so to see like these beautiful people on the cover on the pages but I was just like, wow look how beautiful we can be that that, that was the part that I remember. I was not left out of the narrative because of these magazine so I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it you know last episode we talked about like how do you get into the room and one of the things that we all talked about was you know we all knew that when we were saying getting into the room we knew that the room was white right and I'm sitting here the four of us in this virtual space zoom room going oh no the room is this Like, I don't have to fight to get into this. This is where I belong. What more needs to be done so that POC people can show up authentically and not have to pass for anything? And we talked about self-love. We talked about stopping generational poverty and generational violence and uh, uplifting our stories. I'll say self-love again. I think those are all wonderful things that we can focus on when it comes to showing up authentically in these spaces, whether it's a room full of white people or a room full of black people and, and really creating opportunity.
2: We also we also can't allow our voting rights to be taken away. I mean, mm. there there are laws now in in different states, like in in Florida, where they don't want you to teach black history and they're talking about Critical race theory is something bad. They don't even know what critical race theory is. And we have to continue to make sure that our rights are not chipped away. Yes, ma'am. That's very important, too. And, and, you know, we have to be in the financial world. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd like to
1: thank you guys all for being here
0: with us. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for your wonderful talents and gifts that you're giving to the industry. And personally, Yvonne and I love you guys very much and we we value our friendship with you and look forward to further conversations.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting us. Absolutely.
1: Camouflage is a game we all like to play. But our secrets are as surely revealed by what we want to seem to be as by what we want
0: to conceal. Wee oui, wee. Oui.
1: Thank you for listening and
0: please drink responsibly. responsibly.
1: This podcast is produced by the Logger Lane Group. We would like to thank Logger Lane Spirits co producers and writers Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers sirachi co-producer Matthew Sirachi, podcast coordinator A.J. Dinsmore, and Liam Allen for their original composition and vocals.
0: We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guests, Brenda Robinson and Chaz Eber. Remember to grab our mocktail French 75 recipe and show notes by going to lagrelanespirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Lagrelane Spirits and follow the simple instructions.